What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Behind the Music. Hey. Hi, how's it going? Good, good. Feel like I'm walking into trouble. I'm walking into trouble. Okay, here we go again. They were the pioneers of the original boy band. Five teens from the tough streets of Boston. They shot to fame in the early 90s with their R&B beat fused with a pop sound. The new kids on the block became an international phenomenon with adoring fans who followed them everywhere. But life in the spotlight came at a price. And eventually all that fame took its toll. The band's personal struggles were exposed and then it all came crashing down. But in 2008, the new kids reunited. This time, as grown men who were better than ever, together. Now, 13 years after their original episode of Behind the Music Air, the new kids are back, celebrating key moments in their lives, giving new insights on their journey, and reflecting on the men they've become today. This is the new kids on the block. The story behind the music. I was sitting around my house one afternoon in quarantine, and I said, I'll write a song and magic will occur. We're entertainers, so let's put something together to do our part in helping people feel a little better. In the spring of 2020, the new kids on the block released House Party with help from some of their famous friends. House Party's a great example of the difference between being in the new kids then and being in the new kids now. We take what we do seriously, but we don't take ourselves that serious. The new kids are now mature men with families and kids of their own, just like their fans who have grown up right alongside them. You got the grandmothers, the moms, the kids. Now it's a three-generational experience. It's one of the ways we've evolved from our younger days in that we just have fun. This time around, we know who we are, and I think that makes us much more relatable. The new kids on the block started their journey together on the working-class streets of Boston. Donnie, Danny, Jordan, and Jonathan all grew up in the Irish Catholic neighborhood of Dorchester. We were all friends since elementary school. We're kind of all in the same classes. That's when I met the Knight brothers. Me and Donnie had already known each other a little bit, but we were little kids. We all grew up poor. We all couldn't heat our homes. We all wondered where our next meal was coming from. 
My younger, younger years were incredibly turbulent. To grow up in a house with nine kids, drugs and alcohol all over the place. Music was just my salvation. It was a place where I could go and not just escape, but actually to bring people together and create a happier environment. In the 70s and 80s, Boston schools were actively desegregating their campuses. So the boys were bused to a racially diverse school in the town of Roxbury. Not a lot of white kids were exposed to different ethnicities in Boston, and we were. And we were, with kids of all races, learning to love and respect and admire our differences. Because of their experiences, the guys were exposed to cultural influences that would shape their musical futures. I would get to school and hear Parliament Funkadelic or you name it, and there was always different types of music around. That's when I started popping and break dancing and stuff like that. Me and Jordan, before we were in the group together, we used to battle each other in different break dancing groups. On my 13th birthday, I went in to buy my first album. I ended up being torn between two albums, New Edition and Johnson Crew. And so I was trying to decide, and as I started to read through like the liner notes and stuff, or the credits, I, I noticed this Maurice Starr's name was on both albums. In 1983, local music producer Maurice Starr launched the boy band New Edition. They had become a massive success and the pride of Boston. Everyone in Boston knew who New Edition was. They had that big hit, Candy Girl, and it was like the biggest thing ever. But after an ugly split, New Edition left Maurice and his small record label. It was very hurtful. I quit the business for about two weeks, and I said to myself after two weeks, nah, I'm not a quitter, so let's get up and get this thing going. Now I'm gonna put five young white kids together. With the help of manager Mary Alford, Maurice began looking for the perfect group of white kids who could sing, dance, and rap. Mary Alford lived next to one of my friends. We went over to Maurice's house. He walked in the room, and he's limping around using a broomstick for a crutch. He said, uh, you Donnie? I was like, yeah. He said, I heard you were good. I said, OK. He said, I'm going to make you a star. I looked at the broomstick, <laughs> and I said, uh, and we'll see about that. 15-year-old Donnie signed on as the first member of Maurice's new band with his 13-year-old brother, Mark. We started taking singing lessons, and I would play the drums. I got fully immersed in the studio life, and Mark didn't. I was walking the straight and narrow path, and he was trying everything under the sun, drugs, alcohol, you name it. Slowly, Mark started to drift away, and, you know, one day he said, I'm, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to quit. Maurice said, what do you want to do? Do you want to stop or do you want to keep going? And I said, I want to do this. This is what I'm meant to do. And he said, OK, then it's me and you, kid. With Mark out of the group, Maurice and Donnie struggled to find other local teens who could pull it off. Trying to find five white kids doing what I was doing it was not going to be easy. The talent pool was very shallow, but I had some people in mind. Donnie gave me a call about um, joining this group. So he was like, it's this guy, um, Maury Starr. He produced New Edition. Like, he wants uh, like us to be famous, you know? And I was like, wow, 
Donnie was always talking to me about it, and I, it just, you know, it sounded like a fantasy. And I was like, I don't know. He was just like, come on, man. You got nothing to lose. Just come and audition. Maurice agreed to audition a few of Donnie's friends from school, and the group began to take shape. I sang for him a little bit, and he was like, uh, yeah, I think you could work, man. I think you could work. I went back home, and uh, I told my brother John, I was like, I just went to an audition with Donnie, and uh, uh, the guy said, we can be like famous, like new edition. And John was like, huh? He was like, why didn't you bring me? I was jealous and kind of like, wait a minute, you're not going to leave me behind. I told him about my brother. And Maurice loved the idea of brothers, you know, because of like the Osmond brothers and the Jackson 5. But they were missing the final piece of the puzzle. Enter 12-year-old Joey McIntyre, who came from a different part of town. We went on the hunt for a Michael Jackson-sounding young white kid, which is probably the hardest thing in the world to do, because they don't produce many of those, you know? I had done a bunch of shows and loved to perform, and I guess I had a bit of a reputation around my hometown, and I happened to fit the bill. Maurice named the newly assembled group Nanook. That was completely Maurice's concept. We all hated it from the start. <laughs> oh, my goodness. The dumbest name ever. Nanook. People were like, Nanook, Nanook. No one could say the name right, and I don't know where he got it from. Nanook began performing R&B music in and around Boston. The boys worked tirelessly to make a name for themselves. The plan was black audiences will be surprised when they see its white guys and they will accept them, and we will be a famous R&B act. Each show was like a monumental event. It was a constant battle for us to prove ourselves. We were very young. We were very unpolished. But boy, you saw the grit. <laughs> we were determined. The odds were stacked against us. We were just trying to find our way to learn how to win the crowd over. We just wanted to perform and continue to get better. So we didn't really care where it was or what it was, anywhere we could get a show. We did talent shows. We did backyard birthday parties, roller skating rinks, churches. We performed in a, a jail. We performed at a few jails. I mean, Tony's brother was there. So we got to visit with him, too, while performing. So that was cool. <laughs> Sounds weird, but like, the shows actually were great. We really loved what we were doing and just kept pushing forward. And, you know, with hard work comes success. In 1985, while still in high school, the band began playing bigger venues and started pushing for a record deal. Maurice started calling in favors. You know, I got this new group. They're the white new edition. They're going to be the biggest thing. But they didn't want to hear it. They told me to get out of the building, don't come back. So I said, hmm, let me go instead of through the back door, through the black door. So I got this guy, Larkin Arnold, to listen to me. He said, I don't like that, that name, not new. He said, would you mind changing it to New Kids on the Block, since y'all got a song called that? It was just natural. It's perfect for us. Signed to Columbia Records, R&B division, the New Kids on the Block released their self-titled debut album in the spring of 1986, featuring the single, Be My Girl. We're in high school. Who else in the school got a record out? This is kind of cool. If we make a little money, I could get a scooter and ride around the city. That'd be awesome. But the album made little impact on the charts, and the execs at Columbia quickly lost interest. 
for the record company was like, uh, what are we wasting our time on this group that makes no sense? The record company was like, I think we're gonna cut them off the label. And we were like, we gotta keep going, we gotta keep going. Given one more chance, the guys took matters into their own hands. And in the spring of 1987, the group began working on a new album, appropriately titled Hangin' Tough. The second album had a little more grown-up sound. It was stuff we were listening to, you know, it's got to be organic. We were more creatively involved. Maurice, he's seen us all starting to come up with dance steps, different styles, you know, the way we dress, how we should present ourselves, what music we should be doing. And he'd step back a little bit and he goes, I could learn something from these guys. In April of 1988, the boys had hit their late teens when the first single from the new album was released. But Please Don't Go Girl didn't make the impact on the R&B charts the band had hoped for. We were a R&B act. We were being marketed to black radio only. We did a video and it went to BET. I could see, yeah, trying to cross over after you go pop, but they were trying to go black first with these white kids. That strategy ultimately was not working. Even though we've put all this time and hard work into this, it looked like we just didn't know it was going to happen. Later that summer, the new kids' luck began to change. One pop radio DJ in Florida played Please Don't Go Girl on a pop radio station. The phones lit up. They called the radio people at Sony, at CBS, and they were like, you got a hit, you got a hit. It's a pop record. The song eventually rose to number 10 on the pop charts and became the new kid's first commercial hit. If the guy in Florida would have not played that record, there's no telling what would have happened. Looking back, it's kind of funny that it just happened by accident. As the new kids gained exposure, they got the chance of a lifetime. Audition for 16-year-old pop queen Tiffany as the opening act on her national tour. They popped into my dressing room and they started doing all the oh, oh, oh. And I was like, yes, 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 yes. I don't have an opening act. Literally that night, I put them on stage. Who doesn't like five hot guys doing their thing with great music and being as charismatic as they are? It was exciting and scary at the same time. I mean, here we are getting on a bus. Our parents don't know where we are. There was not cell phones back then. So it was, you know, I'll call you at the hotel or something like that. It was an amazing night that night to get on a tour bus. That was something we could never imagine. The tour with Tiffany got the new kids noticed by a fresh group of fans, and the boys were loving every minute of it. It just grew from that point on. I would peek out and watch their set before I would go on on stage, and you know, it was already crazy. The girls were screaming and crying. So yes, I had a little bit of a feeling in my heart that this was gonna be big. We were playing every night in front of an audience that was made for us that no one really ever thought about, Maurice included. Anchored by the hit single, You Got It, The Right Stuff, the new kids on the block had arrived. By the summer of 1989, the new kids toured with Tiffany again. 
All right, what's it going to be? New Kids on the Block or Tiffany? Only this time, because of their overwhelming popularity, they became the headliners. By the following summer, I was opening up for them. The girls had just fallen in love with their music, fallen in love with them. And I'm kind of in the way. <laughs> it's like, I remember getting on stage and the first, like, three songs, you couldn't see anything because all the flashes, you know, it, it was just blinding and screams. It's like, I don't, I don't even know if the girls even heard the music, heard anything we said for the first three songs because they were so loud. This is your second album, and I just want to know what what changes are there from the debut album. It's us. It's not the, right. the other one wasn't too much us, and this is us. This is more real for us. I mean, this is where we come from. Hangin' Tough was the commercial phenomenon of 1989, spawning five top ten hits and selling over eight million copies. Almost overnight, the boys from Boston became superstars. We'd be bored, you know, in some town at the hotel, and let's go to the mall. If you went by yourself, you never had a problem. If you have, you know, two of us, it gets bigger. And then if a third person comes along, you're done. They were scratching and ripping my clothes off and yelling in my face. There was risk of serious bodily injury back then. You think little girls aren't strong, they're very strong. People would knew where I lived, they'd be at my house, and my mom's in the kitchen with like 10 fans just feeding them cookies. Once the fuse was lit, the fuse was lit. It was going and it was going big. There was no stopping. It was like really over the top, the adulation, the excitement. And it was like, what are we getting into? <laughs> On June 5th, 1990, the new kids released their third album, Step by Step. The title track raced to the top of the charts. It was the new kids' best-selling single to date, launching them into international superstardom. Step by Step Around the World sold about six million plus records. Just that song, that single. Their popularity was now at an all-time high. You know, as a teenager, there's no preparation for that level of fame. Five guys, boy band, they're a massive success. But when you can't, you know, get up and go to the pool or you can't go to the gym, and as soon as you walk out the, the hotel, there's all these girls. It's a lot. It really is a lot. They would knock in on your door at 2 in the morning, and they'd have, like, stuff written <laughs> on their face, like, I love Joe. So they knew where we were at. And we came up to our floor, and it was all five of us, and the door opened, and some girl was standing there like this in front of the elevator, and she went, boom. <laughs> and she just, she just fainted. She was OK. While most of the guys were enjoying the fandom of screaming girls, Jonathan Knight was struggling in secret. Nobody knew I was gay. The 80s were crazy for all gay people. Everything was just so behind closed doors. I remember, you know, one night going to our manager and just saying, I'm gay. What, like, what, like, help? Um, and his reply was, you can't tell anybody, you can't tell the guys, you can't, like, this cannot get out, or you're just gonna have all this come crashing down. Jonathan pushed on, 
playing the role of a teenage heartthrob. You date the good Catholic girls and then you don't have to sleep with them. He even dated Tiffany. John Knight and I were boyfriend and girlfriend for about a little over two and a half years. Tiffany, she's gonna kill me. It was, it was, she knows now. It started out really innocent. Kinda innocent. Just, we were just friends. It was a really good friendship. There was nothing ever dirty about it. It was great. She's, she's an awesome person. He is my heart. I still love him dearly. And he was a great first boyfriend. As a person, I really, you know, got him. Pressured by fame to maintain his pop star image, Jonathan also chose to hide his sexuality from the other new kids. I never really felt that I would be rejected by them. I never felt I'd be rejected by my family. It was the business aspect of it that really was like, you need to keep shut. You need to not be seen going out to clubs. And you know, at such a young age, that's a lot of stress to put on one person. I can imagine the pressure of like, holy shit, I'm in like a, a, a boy band. Oh Girls are supposed to love us, and here I am, I'm gay. It must have been really difficult. I never knew anything. I mean, we were boyfriend and girlfriend. We never really talked about anything like that. We just didn't know what he was dealing with, how much it was impacting him. It was hard to tune into it because we were all feeling different pressures ourselves. You know, there was always 150 to 200 kids in front of my house just waiting for us to show up. We each had our struggles with it because we did want to still live normal lives when we weren't working. I continued to want to go home and hang out on the corner like any 16-year-old kid, and that wasn't a possibility. For years, there was no escaping the spotlight for any of the new kids. With over 150 products in the marketplace, their faces were literally everywhere. That's when it started to become like a machine. Walk into a store and there was you know, marbles and lunchboxes, bed sheets, new kids on the block, cereal, playing cards, and cartoons. The whole merchandise side of things got out of control. I never thought it was too much product out. I was sitting back thanking God that these millions were flowing in. It happened so fast, it was like a huge snowball going down the hill, we just couldn't stop it. It wasn't exactly the way we wanted things to go. And you walk into a toy store and there's these stuffed animal dolls of you sitting there. But we were so young, it was so hard to like, know really what you could take control of and really what you could say. By the time we, we said, okay, we gotta start controlling this thing, it was too late. We were just grinding and grinding and grinding just because our business manager was like, you're gonna make money here, you're gonna make money there. And it was just like, ugh, ugh, ugh. And our spirits weren't being refreshed. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. 
this guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away for murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. By the end of 1990, as the New Kids released a hip-hop-infused remix album of their biggest hits, they had earned an astonishing $115 million in that year alone, beating out icons like Michael Jackson and Madonna. When you're told you're a millionaire and you're like 21, 20, you know, like, yeah, it was exciting. I'll never forget our financial advisor. He advised us to take care of our parents and then put the rest in the bank. That was the kind of advice we were getting early on. So that kind of has stuck with us. How many people can say they retired their mom when they were 19, 20 years old? All the hard work she did through all those years, working nights, cleaning floors, you know, taking any job she could to help keep our family afloat and raise nine kids, um, you know, um, how can I complain about missing out on what typical teenage life is when I was able to take care of my mom? That same year, they launched their most extravagant live show to date, the Magic Summer Tour. The sold-out stadiums brought big-time status to the new kids. But even though they were filling seats, their inspiration on stage was fading. We were so disconnected from the audience. I mean, there was people like a mile away, way, way up high, and it just, it was off. I think there is such a thing as being too popular. And I really think that that's what happened to us. By 1991, the new kids on the block were one of the biggest acts in the world. Their fans worshiped them, but music critics weren't impressed. Back in the day, we took a lot of hits for singing bubblegum songs, not really adding anything to the music world except for a bunch of screaming girls. Donnie really was the one that took it really personally and made it his mission to lash back at these people. I don't know how much you guys really care at this point about critical acceptance. I mean, I think everyone in the world cares about how people feel about them. Billy Idol 
makes a lot of jokes about us. To me, I just don't understand why a 40-year-old man would spend so much energy on us. Step by Step was a failure. It sold five million copies. What, what kind of failure is that? When I was 21 years old, I was mad at the criticism. When I was 38 in the original Behind the Music, I was trying to explain why I was mad about the criticism. The criticism was just overwhelming to me. I really didn't have the makeup to ignore it. You know, I don't think he was wired to handle it any differently. He grew up in Dorchester. It was a tough neighborhood. You know, I'm 51 now, and I love the criticism anyway now. You know, it's like, that's where I'm at. I don't hear criticism. Donnie's image as a bad boy was fueled even more in March 1991, when he was arrested for allegedly setting a hotel room on fire. To give us a day off in Louisville, Kentucky is a mistake. There's nothing to do there, so like, Donnie just sprayed the fire extinguisher in his room. And it was just a prank, because he was bored. He's covered in white powder. His whole room, him. I didn't light a fire, I didn't do any such thing. In fact, I did the opposite of light a fire. But the press reported a different story. The charges were eventually dropped, but for the new kids, the story became legend. I always felt trapped in hotels. I always would do mischievous things. Just because I was bored and frustrated in hotels and I couldn't go out and do everyday stuff doesn't mean I have the right to like leave my hotel room like a trash heap. In some ways, it had to happen for me to grow up a little bit. Donnie's badass attitude ignited a spark in the new kid's spirit, but a relentless touring schedule began to smother them. You know, there was a time where they were just pushing us, pushing us, pushing us. We were so hot, so blazing hot, that we had no time. We would end a tour, they'd think of a new name for another tour and just throw us back out there again. We were going just so fast. We were working 362 days of the year. When we would come off tour, I wouldn't go home. I would go to Boston and check into a hotel and not tell anybody just so I could sit in silence and just, you know, be still. After nearly four years of constant touring, conflicts began to arise among friends. You start to get on each other's nerves. I think we've all thrown blows at each other. It was such a humongous thing for, for, for a long period of time and at such intensity that, you know, something had to give. There'd be times where we walk down a hotel hallway and like ships in the night not even say anything. We didn't have the coping skills and the patience to understand each other and, and show support. By 1993, growing conflict between the guys was not the only tension within the New Kids camp. After nearly a decade together, the band began to feel like producer Maurice Starr was taking credit for their success. I'll pick up a magazine and see him saying, well, they don't have to have talent, they just need someone like me, you know. And the things he was saying, you know, just was not true and not cool. But we love him, we wouldn't be here without him. We all made mistakes back then. Maurice is our brother, and that'll never change. I think he went through a phase, you know? We were getting a lot of attention, you know? He wanted to be known as, you know, the guy that, that did it all. No, I didn't do it all. If those guys did not have the energy, if those guys did not have the talent, if those guys didn't have what it took, none of this would have never happened. 
Now in their 20s and no longer kids, in 1994, the renamed NKOTB released their fifth album, Face the Music. We wanted to reinvent ourselves. We had just left being signed to Maury Star, so we were kind of free. Like, we were grown up, and we're changing our name, and we're going to do things more how we want to do it. It took us like two years to put that record together. It was too long. It was a struggle to get the songs and just who were we working with. It didn't have the same feeling as when we had released other stuff. The writing was kind of already on the wall, like things were changing a bit in the music business. The band's mix of a new producer, new music, and a new name was not a winning combination. As their fans aged into the grunge era of Nirvana and Pearl Jam, Face the Music sold less than 150,000 copies. People were becoming so anti-pop. You know, I felt that. I felt that coming. Um, I was like, I, I put in my time. This is as far as it's going to go. Um, it, it's time to move on. With the pressure of launching yet another tour, Jonathan questioned whether he wanted to be a part of the group at all. He had been hiding his sexuality and struggling with anxiety for years. I had a secret to hide, and, you know, by me leaving the group, maybe would set me free and I could just go live my life. For John, he didn't decide to leave, he wasn't in, and it was back and forth, he's in, he's out, he's in, he's out. So we decided to have a vote. And we said, all in favor of John being out of the band, raise your hand. And three hands went up, and Jordan said, majority rules. The day that they got on the bus and left, was like, just, that was, it killed me, you know? Cause I just, I felt like I let them down so bad. You know, there's a million ways you could tell the story of why we broke up and oh, John left. Like John didn't leave, the energy left, we all left. Danny, Donnie, Jordan and Joe soldiered on, but not for long. They soon canceled the rest of the tour. And in June of 1994, their epic journey officially came to an end. You know, the fans weren't there. The demand wasn't there. The desire to go for another few years wasn't there. After breaking up, the new kids went their separate ways into new chapters of their lives. But each of them struggled as they transitioned from teenage superstars to aimless adults. That's really when it smacked me in my face, that here I am, 25 years old, no career, I have no plans for what I'm gonna do with the rest of my life. So I went into a really deep depression at that time. It was like a big hangover. You know, I was a little depressed because, you know, working and being creative is what builds self-esteem. So when that goes away, it's hard to handle. I wanted to go and become Donnie Wahlberg. You know, I wanted to go do all these different things and be my own man. I wanted to just grow into myself. When you're in a group, you kind of have to fit in, and you can't fully be yourself. Every decision can be yours now. I, I think the difficult thing was we weren't together as a group, but there was still that love-hate for us out there. So, you know, you still get the jealous guys yelling something at you across the street or something, and OK, man. We, we're, we went away now, so you can uh, stop yelling at me. As they adapted to their new lives out of the spotlight, 
the guys gradually began to find themselves. I said, okay, this year I'm going to figure out how to make $50,000. And that was my goal. A friend of mine called me saying, do you want to flip a house? We did maybe two houses our first year and just kept building on it. While Jonathan left entertainment behind, Danny, Jordan, and Joey all went on to release solo albums. Donnie found himself in an entirely new career as an actor. After breakthrough roles in Ransom and The Sixth Sense, Donnie immersed himself in his acting career for years. You know, I don't have to pat myself on the back. I'm, I'm a pretty good actor, you know. I don't have any Oscar nominations, but we know who the better actor in the Wahlberg household is. That's okay. It's me. But I'm telling you, I'm a musician first. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. In 2007, Donnie heard a demo for a song called Click, Click, Click. I heard the song Click, Click, Click and played it for Jordan and Joey and Danny and got the reaction that I had hoped for. I loved it. And that was kind of the spark to get us back in the studio and, you know, get the ball rolling. I just could picture us singing it. It was. What we were looking for, were grown men wanted to show that different side of us, and it just, the song suited that. Click a Click was the one that really stood out to me as something that um, could be a launch of our sound, our new sound. When you listen and you get the chills, you get back in the studio, and that kind of stuff is, you know, what it's all about. Honestly, I felt Enough time had passed for that kind of uh, stigma to fade away and go, where's the new kids? You know, I definitely 
never thought anywhere along the way that we would get back together. It had been 15 years since the new kids had recorded together. Not everyone was convinced it would work. There was a conversation early on in the reunion of, you know, was John going to stay in the band? Jonathan was unsure if he would still be crippled by the same anxiety that plagued him while performing. It was a big decision to go back and just lots of discussions of what it's going to be like and how it's going to work. And eventually I felt comfortable enough, like we were grown up and we're going to do things more how we want to do it. And I was like, let's go. In early 2008, the five guys, now in their mid to late 30s, assembled for their first recording session together since 1993. Fifi! Look who else is Fifi today! Hey. What's up? That first time was really awkward. How's it going? You could tell I'm hugging Joe, but it's like, hey, I don't know you no more, man. I haven't seen Donnie in probably 10 years. I probably haven't seen Danny maybe once or twice in the last 14 years. Joe, I've probably seen him once. I mean, I didn't know what to expect. There's nothing like getting back in the studio with the guys, you know, that first time and cutting vocals and hearing our, you know, vocals together. We have our own sound and and that's, that's pretty cool. It took a little bit to like get back into that comfort zone and to kind of realize, you know, we've grown up, but kind of everyone's personalities are still the same. <laughs> All right, guys. All right. Our first step together in 15 damn years, right? What's your fucking Look at just like the whole thing. To be back after all that time in a rehearsal studio dancing again together, it gave me chills. As the new kids prepared to announce the reunion, they wondered if their fans would also return. We came back hard. We worked. Some of those old fights still had residue on our reunion, but I went to a lot of therapy. And I remember really using a lot of the lessons I'd learned in the band. Listening better, talking less. We really want to take this picture right now. Before that first snap, we could all walk away. <laughs> To be fair, I definitely was dipping my toe in the waters, check the temperature of the water. But I didn't care. I didn't have any fear that it wasn't going to work. In September of 2008, 15 years since their last album together, the new kids released The Block and launched a national tour. We had this lift at the back of the stage. It just lifted us up. The sound was, it was deafening. It, it sounded like a 747. It was out of control. I'd never felt that. In all our years, there was history in those screens. It was <laughs> the most amazing feeling I have ever felt in my life. It was, it just spoke. <laughs> Back in that moment, it was, yeah, it was just so, it was so special. It was immediately apparent that their fans had gone nowhere. Everybody has a child inside. Everybody has an inner teenager. We get a little older, but the feelings never, ever die. 
and that's what we represent to our fans. The boys were blown away by the emotion they felt being on stage together again. It was a much, much deeper connection, a much deeper understanding of how important we were to each other. We all really needed each other again. It's pretty amazing, it really is. I was comfortable with myself, and here I am back with these four guys that have been in my life since I was a kid. Over the years, Jonathan had grown more comfortable with his sexuality. His family and the band knew he was gay, but he hadn't made a point of revealing it to the public until 2009, when the tabloid press threatened to out him. I was dating my husband then, and I got a call from my publicist. She said that an ex of yours is about to release pictures to the National Enquirer. And it just got to be like, enough is enough. Jonathan decided to release a public statement revealing he was gay. The fans totally accepted it, and we just thought it makes the group better. It makes the group richer. One of the truly special things for me is watching him take ownership of who he is and being at peace with that. Not just as a gay man, but as a performer. I started to realize early on in the second incarnation of the band that the fans saw themselves more in John than in any of us. It's never changed how I look at him. People were like, how do you feel? I'm like, how do I feel about what? That my friend is gay? I feel he's fabulous. That's how I feel. End of story. <laughs> Just made me so happy how far society has come to realize, you know, everybody's the same, we're just a little different. Jonathan is now married. And all of the new kids have grown into family men. Jordan and Joey also married and had kids. Danny is a grandfather. And Donnie found the love of his life when he married actress Jenny McCarthy. My journey with Jenny is in some ways similar to my journey through music. Every day I woke up thinking about the band, thinking about moving it forward. It was part of who I was. And the same thing happened with Jenny. That wisdom and mature outlook has allowed the new kids to defy the odds a second time around. To date, their reunion tours have grossed more than $250 million and given them the opportunity to fulfill a lifelong dream. There are no words to describe playing at Way Park. It's sacred ground, so to play a concert there is beyond really the scope of what the mind can imagine. For five guys that grew up in that city rooting for the Red Sox, it doesn't get any bigger or better than that. Also as adults, the new kids redefine their relationship with their fans. And their annual NKOTB cruise is one of their favorite ways to connect. Every cruise, every song, every single opportunity to connect with the fans is an opportunity to bring happiness, not just to them, but to me. It's the best time ever. I mean, a lot has changed just 
our personal relationship with fans. And you can talk to people and ask them normal grown-up questions instead of them just, you know, reaching out to rip your hair out. We've all just grown and matured and have learned, I think, to stay very present and stay very grateful. My connection with our fans and being part of this band, that's why I'm on this planet, was to be part of this experience and part of this love. Now, well into their 40s and 50s, the new kids are far from old men, but they are wise enough to strike the right balance between their careers and their personal lives. I would do anything for any guy in the group and have so much respect and love for them. I just, I feel lucky just to have them in my life. I think we can keep doing what we're doing. Uh, you know, as long as the fun is there, as long as the spirit's there, as long as the camaraderie is there. I think with maturity, you learn to focus on what's important. Doing this again and continuing to do this with family, of course, it changes everything. These were my four brothers. It's a massive gift, and I wring every drip out of it. I hope we all continue doing things in life that we love. It's just the best thing in the world. You know, from the time we were little boys till now as men, we got each other's back. We're never walking out there alone. I fully expect John and Jordan and Danny and Joey to be in my life forever. Listen to Behind the Music on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Want more episodes? You can watch Remastered, Best of the Vault, and new episodes of Behind the Music only on Paramount+. Plus. John Stewart is back at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.